Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Dr. Tygo Hanarkon of University College Dublin. His paper was entitled Early Modern Catholicism in the Northern Netherlands, England and Ireland. Some points of comparison and contrast. So what I want to do today is just offer a a brief consideration of some of the features of early modern Catholicism in three societies. That's largely England, Britain, but largely England, Ireland and the Northern Netherlands. In addition to their geographical location on the western margins of Catholic Europe, the principal factor linking these three areas is their shared inheritance of state hostility and the existence of a favoured non-Catholic church establishment, which posed a considerable challenge to the possibilities of survival and growth of Catholicism. However, despite this basic commonality, the difference in the self-understanding of the favoured non-Catholic confession in each state and the varying extents of state power in enforcing programmes of coercion were critical factors in the differing evolution of Catholicism in these three areas. Now, each of these areas, I think, formed an often underestimated role within the wider family of European Catholicism, which is one of the things that I've really been working on over the last couple of years. This may seem most surprising with regard to England. By the end of the 16th century, anti-Catholicism had emerged as a key constituent of the identity of wide swathes of the English population. Nevertheless, what can be underestimated is the degree to which the island kingdom continued to exercise a whole series of fascinations for Catholic Europeans. In this regard, England constituted a vitally important imaginative space, not least as the locus of martyrdom. Early modern Catholicism was relatively short of martyrs in Europe. It's a persecuting rather than a persecuted um, confession, Um, This deficiency was to a certain extent remedied by stories of the heroism of uh, missionaries in areas like Japan. However, in the central conflict against Protestant heresy in Europe, England occupied a special role in the generation of imaginative horror and sympathy as the result of the state's execution of Catholic clerics. Robert Persons' De Persecuzione Anglicana Anglicana Libellus, first published in Latin in 1582, became a runaway publishing success in continental Europe, with fresh editions being prepared in Rome, Paris and Ingolstadt, and translations being undertaken into Italian, German, French and Spanish. Edward Campion, who had worked as a missionary in Central Europe, was revered as a martyr in Habsburg territories, and a translation of his Raziones Decum was published in Graz in 1588. English exiles played a significant role in shaping the attitudes of other Catholic national identities. The principal architect of Hungarian Catholic renewal, Peter Pazman, was undoubtedly influenced by his contacts with English Jesuits while in Rome during the 1590s. In Poland, author Arthur Font was a critical uh, uh, influence in helping to mould the confessional attitudes of a generation of influential Polish Catholic priests and intellectuals. Supplementing the personal impact of such exiles, um, was the intellectual effect of the writings of English Catholic intellectuals. And again, we can underestimate the degree of importance of the transfer of large, uh, you know, of a huge uh, cohort of intellectuals from Oxford and Cambridge um, at the end of the, of the Marian reign to continental Europe. In this regard, the published output of Thomas Stapleton was of critical importance, while Robert Bellarmine's work was arguably of more foundational importance for Catholic identi- identity. 
Stapleton was one of the few Catholic controversialists whose work matched that of the Italian Jesuit in terms of its intellectual depth and importance in establishing stable, nodal points around which Catholic criticism of heresy could coalesce. And Stapleton, it's interesting, is the favoured lunchtime um, hearing. Clement VIII in the 1590s used to have a Catholic controversialist read to him at mealtimes, and Stapleton was his personal favourite. In the early 17th century, the Stuart monarchs of England also contributed to a process of crystallisation of intellectual positions with the furore over the issue of oaths of allegiance, which resulted in a personal duel between Bellarmine and James I. In the latter part of the reign of James I and that of his son, Charles I, the issue of a royal marriage to a Catholic princess also brought into focus issues relating to Catholic loyalty and allegiance to a heretical monarch, which troubled and complicated the neat divisions between orthodoxy and heresy, which generations of Catholic controversialists had seduced cultivated. These issues eventually proved incapable of resolution during the 1640s with devastating effects both for the king himself and for the Catholic subjects of the Irish kingdom who laboured in vain to produce a durable treaty with the king approved by Rome which would allow them to pool their resources with Protestant royalists to confront the threat of the English parliament. Perceptions of England were thus vital in shaping attitudes in Rome towards the more important Catholic reservoirs in Ireland. England was more central, not merely because of its traditional importance within the Christian world, but also, as I say, because the execution of priests under England's ferocious anti-recusant legislation was easier to romanticise than the petty harassments of the Irish majority or the murky mingling of religion and politics which figured in Irish rebellions of the later 16th century. Perhaps most important of all, I think, the political memory of the English breach with Rome exerted a significant influence over subsequent papal policy. That Clement VIII's decision to absolve Henri IV in the 1590s was influenced by a desire not to emulate Clement VII, whose inability to stand up to Habsburg pressure had led to the alienation of England from the Church of Rome, seems highly probable. During the 1630s, as pressure mounted on the Barberini papacy of Urban VIII to employ sharp sanctions against Richelieu's support of Protestant anti-Habsburg forces, the example of England was explicitly invoked to justify papal caution in this respect. In in 1635, for instance, the Polish nuncio, Marius Filinardi, was informed that Spanish pressure for a censure of France had been rejected by a congregation of cardinals on the ground that, but for his excommunication, Henry VIII would have renewed uh, the communion with Rome following the execution of Anne Boleyn, while without Pius V's unfortunate decision to excommunicate Henry's daughter, Elizabeth, freedom of conscience would have been available to English Catholics in late Elizabethan England. So that this is a, the, the memory of England and the memory of the breach, I think, is, 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 is a, a, of surprising importance in helping to colour subsequent papal attitudes and papal policy. Across the Western Sea in Ireland, Catholicism developed according to a completely different trajectory. While both from a papal and English perspective, late medieval Ireland was a territory of very limited importance, the surprising religious developments in Ireland were to have genuinely critical repercussions. And of course we we know that, that the consolidation of a Catholic identity in early modern Ireland ensured that the nascent British Empire did not evolve as an exclusive bastion of Protestantism. Rather contiguous to its very centre, there developed a significant English Catholic-speaking population which in the course of the 19th and 20th centuries spread throughout the empire, providing the core of the Catholic communities, which developed not merely in areas such as Australia and New Zealand, but also within Britain itself. And the evolution of the Irish population towards a strong Catholic majority is, in a sense, the opposite of the conundrum of the transmutation of Catholic in England in the course of the 16th century. The loss of England from the Catholic fold was undoubtedly experienced as particularly grievous in Rome, and the unlikely retention of Ireland, however important in the long term, did relatively little to soften that blow. 
uh, and right through the, the, the late 16th and the 17th century, I think considerations of English Catholicism remain more important in Rome than considerations of Irish Catholicism. Not far short of England in terms of its traditional importance within the Catholic world was the Netherlands, where another significant peripheral territory of European Catholicism developed. Already in crisis by the 1560s, when widespread evidence of discontent with the existing church was clearly evident, together with um, widespread opposition to Philip II's planned reforms, the evolution of Dutch Catholicism was subsequently critically influenced by the wars between the rebellious northern provinces and Spain. In a manner somewhat reminiscent of England in the 1530s, when the development of the crisis between the regime and Rome impelled Henry VIII to recruit support from an evangelical movement with which he had relatively little sympathy, the fervent nature of the Dutch Reformed minority's commitment to the anti-Spanish struggle was critical in securing the primacy of their religion among the rebels. In 1572, the States General declared the Reformed religion to be the public recognised faith of the provinces in revolt, and in February 1573, it outlawed the public practice of Catholic worship. Stoked by the war against Spain, a violent outpouring of iconoclasm and anti-Catholic sentiment and violence resulted. Over the course of the next eight years, the basic legal and economic framework underpinning the dominance of the Reformed Confession was then worked out. In addition to the secularisation of church property between 1580 and 1680, the provincial estates of Holland prescribed the teaching of Catholic doctrine, the reception of priests, the distribution of Catholic literature, attendance at Catholic universities, or the ministration of priests at ceremonies of marriage or baptism. The public practice of religion was largely closed off to the Catholic community as the enforcement of law restricted any manifestations of ceremonies deemed offensive to the hegemonic church. Thus, while in practice a good deal of private connivance of Catholicism was permitted in the Netherlands, its subordinate status and exclusion from the public sphere was more rigidly enforced. In Amsterdam, for instance, the significant revival and reorganisation of Catholicism occurred within the city's cosmopolitan environment in the course of the first half of the 17th century. Despite the city's enforcement of anti-Catholic placards, the increase of the number of Catholics in the city warranted its division into two parishes in 1610 and five in 1626. In 1640, however, the Catholics of Amsterdam were sharply warned to keep their religious ceremonies unostentatious or else to face reprisals. So Catholicism, while extremely, while Catholics are extremely numerous and with the generality lands by 1648 there may actually be a majority of Catholics within the, the, the lands of the, of, of the northern provinces, they are excluded from the public sphere. The war against Spain certainly helped to keep hostility towards Catholicism at a high level, but the inauguration of the 12-year truce, 1609 to 1621, and the emergence of often savage divisions between Armenians and their opponents within the Reformed Church offered something of a breathing space. In general, from the second quarter of the 17th century, the scope of state repression of Catholicism became milder. Whereas Catholic ceremonies had previously been confined to private houses, temporarily converted for worship, gradually fixed mission stations began to develop, which frequently involved the conversion of a large private house into a custom-built space for religious ceremonies, but with an unchanged outer appearance, which allowed the authorities to overlook its function. Catholic clergy continued to be subject to arrest and imprisonment, but other than execution, they were liable to be subjected to a system of intimidation, followed by ransoms paid by the local Catholic community, which had the dual financial purpose of imposing a financial penalty on the Catholic laity and enriching the coffers of the prosecuting authority. Following payments of sums which could amount to several thousand guilders, priests were generally condemned to exile with consequential loss of their sacramental functions to their congregations. 
As part of an effort to avoid both the humiliation and deprivation which arrest of priests entailed, a system of recognition fees gradually developed, which in a fashion not dissimilar to English recusancy fines allowed in the 1630s, allowed Catholic communities to purchase a degree of immunity from the implementation of anti-Catholic laws by the payment of a negotiated amount. By 1642, the director of the Holland Mission reported that he paid 50,000 guilders in such fees over a four-year period. In contrast to Tudor and Stuart Britain in Ireland, however, the Reformed Church of the United Provinces did not aspire to conscript the entire population into the ranks of an official national church. Indeed, concerned to establish the genuine nature of the faith of its adherents, the Reformed Church placed significant tests before those who wished to join its ranks. Joining was a privilege. Um, Thus, the opposite of Elizabeth's unwillingness to make windows into her subject souls, but nevertheless requiring their public obedience by attendance at church obtained. In the Northern Netherlands, being a Catholic in itself, as opposed to participation in Catholic worship, did not place an individual outside the the law. By the end of the 16th century, possibly only 20% of the population were members of the Reformed Church, and this is one of the factors which allows the remarkable regeneration of Dutch Catholicism in the Northern Provinces from 1592 on. Now, to what extent um, were certain general uh, characteristics shared by the Catholicism which developed in the Western European fringe of the part considered in partibus infidelibus in Rome? And this, I suppose, I'm kind of engaging in something with dialogue with Christine Coy's arguments about minority Catholicism. Certainly neither Britain nor Ireland nor the Netherlands corresponded to the norm exemplified in the Italian and Iberian Peninsula, where Catholicism was the state-supported religion of the vast majority of the population. Rather, in each area, Catholicism occupied a position of legal inferiority within a pluriconfessional state. For Catholics of such societies, the casual assumptions of ownership of public space, which underpinned the secure centres of the continental mainland, was simply impossible. Rather, a sense of marginality was an essential part of their religious inheritance. Nevertheless, necessarily, such conditions created different perceptions and identities which could be troubling to visitors from continental centres of Catholicism, as, for instance, the papal nuncio to Ireland in the 1640s, Rinuccini. Rinuccini's Italian uh, Italianate inflexibility has been overestimated in the past, but one area where he clearly struggled in Ireland was the willingness of his Confederate Catholic hosts to make differentiation between the various Protestant identities on the island. From the beginnings of their conflict, the Confederates were prepared to draw a st- distinction between Protestants of their king sort and Puritans. To some extent, this corresponded to an awareness of political realities. It was possible to envisage a coexistence with the king's church on the basis of negotiated conditions, which was simply not feasible with the religious zealots who ultimately came to triumph in the English civil wars. But for many of the confederates, these distinctions went beyond the merely political. For these, the king's church was also morally superior to the other competing forms of British Protestantism, not least because of its greater organisational similarity to the Church of Rome. During the early Stuart era as well, English Catholics too were keenly aware of the different shades of Protestant opinion and clear concerning their preferences. Rinuccini, as an example, on the other hand, while he could understand political arguments concerning the utility of making truces or treaties with one faction of heretics, shrank from the religious relativism which he sensed among his Confederate opponents. For the Italian nuncio, heresy was heresy, and a difference in one small essential from the Catholic Church was essentially the same as a whole series. Catholics on the margins of Europe, moreover, were keenly aware of the international dimensions of their church, not least because of the vital importance of institutions based in the Catholic centres of Europe in training the clergy in which the provision of of, of sacraments to the populations of these areas depended. 
While significant movements of the laity of the region to Catholic centres also occur, occur, occurred, the importance of international colleges in providing education for clergy and their consequent exposure to the very different world of Catholic states can hardly be overstated. The desire of these marginal Catholic communities to emphasise their own people's participation in a wider Catholic family of nations, joined together within the supranational institution of the One True Church, was manifested in many ways. Not least, for instance, in the use of history to emphasise the characteristics of their national Catholicism. This was signified not merely in such events as the controversy which erupted between Welsh and English Catholics concerning the discovery of a tombstone in Rome in the 1570s, which the English party claimed for Caedwalla, King of Wessex, while the Welsh insisted on his commemoration of Caedwaladur, the blessed last king of the Britons. For both parties in this dispute, the desire to claim a historical connection to Rome was part of a greater project to assert the organic connection between Welsh and English identity and the Catholic religion legitimated by the ancient past. Thomas Thomas Stapleton's translation of Bede can also be viewed as a product of a similar preoccupation. Similarly, the first half of the 17th century was to prove a particularly fecund era in terms of Catholic historiography of the Netherlands, linking Dutch history to the Roman Church. And of course, this is a general phenomenon. We have Bohemia Sancta, Austria Sancta emerging in the same in the same time frame. And of course, we have the, uh, with regard to Ireland, we have the extraordinary multi-dimensional historiographical enterprise centred largely in the Franciscan College of Saint Anthony's in Louvain. Um, which strove to establish the inextricably Catholic identity of the Gaelic-Irish population. Yet if a common inheritance of marginality, of creative engagement with the past, and of at least contested entry into and more commonly exclusion from public space distinguish the Catholicism of these areas, this, I think, should not obscure the very major differences which pockmarked the region as well. And this is where I, I, I part from the Christine Coy thesis, if you like. Of central importance in this regard was the character and attitudes of the state and of the state church. Fundamental differences distinguished England and Wales, Scotland, Ireland and the Netherlands and this had profound effects on the nature of the Catholicism which developed. Scotland was the area which had most success in obliterating the Catholic past through the remarkably successful educative uh, enterprises of the Kirk. In England, the peculiar Elizabethan settlement, backed by ferocious anti-Catholic legislation, ultimately succeeded in restricting outright recusancy to a tiny minority of the 17th century population, although a much wider penumbra of church papistry and sympathy uh, uh, evidently survived than in Scotland. Moreover, English Catholicism was far less politically marginal than its Scottish counterpart, and and down to the interregnum at least, its consistent access to the court court, and its bastions within the aristocracy offered it possibilities of a renegotiation of status. In the third kingdom of the archipelago, Catholicism survived as the majority confession, not least because the state church lacked both the coercive and evangelical capacity to disrupt it. In one respect, 17th century Ireland, down to 1641, resembled Elizabethan England in that politically Catholicism was the sleeping giant which did not directly challenge the structures of the Protestant state. But in sharp contrast to 16th century England, this political quiescence was not accompanied by any major success on the part of the state church in winning the religious allegiance of the population. Rather, the period saw an intensifying consolidation uh, of Catholic identity. Consequently, only a massive programme of coercion and evangelisation offered any possibility of shaking the dominance of the Roman church in the island. In the Netherlands, neither neither the decentralised system of governance nor the publicly privileged reformed church demanded religious conformity of the republic's inhabitants. This was the crucial factor in allowing a much larger Catholic minority to survive in the Netherlands than across the North Sea in Britain. The differing coercive 
powers and policies and educative impulses of the state and state church were thus critical determinants of the evolution of Catholicism in all these polities. But as well as a different history of adaptation to political circumstances, the internal evolution of the various Catholic communities differed sharply. In Ireland, for instance, Catholic reform became mapped onto pre-existing and differing ethnic identities to a much greater extent than anywhere else in the region. While a shared religion did in some respects help to draw Old English and Gaelic-Irish identities together, it certainly did not obliterate ethnic difference, and the emphasis on different traits of Catholic identity was used on both sides of the divide to maintain a sense of ethnic difference and superiority. Neither the Netherlands nor Ireland, on the other hand, had any real equivalent to the court Catholicism of the Caroline era, although certain individual Irish figures such as the Earls of Antrim and Clan Rickard gained entry to its world. The experience of portions of the Dutch generality lands to, uh, of a triumphant Catholic reformation followed by conquest and subjugation by a Protestant power was also unique in the region. It can also be pointed out that there was no one Catholic church structure which distinguished the area under review. In Ireland, by the second quarter of the 17th century, Rome had, re- had effectively re-established a resident hierarchy based on the traditional seas of the island, By the 1640s, this hierarchy emerged as the central leadership of the Irish church, but it included among its ranks a significant number of regular clergy. In the Netherlands, the leadership of the Missio Hollandica was in the hands of vicars apostolic rather than bishops, drawn from the secular clergy. In England, no one dominant authority structure emerged, but rather competing organisations of often mutually hostile regular and secular clergy. In England, the Society of Jesus emerged as a genuinely critical influence in the development of the kingdom's Catholicism, centering not merely to its spirituality, but also to most of the conflicts which divided it. The society was the most powerful institution of regular clergy in the northern Netherlands as well, supplying in and around half of the personnel, uh, regular personnel which were um, active on the mission. As in England, the Jesuits were also to the fore in offering an alternative vision of a missionary territory in contrast to the diocese-centred order which the secular leadership aspired to create. Against that, however, the Jesuits are much less important in the Netherlands than they are in England. In 1629, they amounted to hardly more than 10% of the active clergy on the Missio Hollandica, and even in mid-century, when their numbers had close to doubled, uh, they still amounted to little more than one-eighth of the functioning clergy. In Ireland, while the society was certainly not of negligible importance, there is no doubt that the Franciscan order was of far greater importance, and it was the friars, together with the secular clergy, which left the chief stamp on the island's practices and devotions. The very differing influences of Jansenism, significant in both the Netherlands and in Ireland, but far less so, I think, in England, was arguably related to the relative importance of the Jesuit missions in the various areas. The United Provinces seem also to have differed from both Britain and Ireland in terms of the degree to which the regulation of marriage emerged as a major source of tension. To some extent, this reflected the degree to which marriage between Catholics and spouses of other confessions was a much more common occurrence in the Netherlands. While in Ireland two significant populations of different confessional background existed in close proximity to each other, the fact that the Protestant population was of relatively recent provenance and with regard to Gaelic Catholics, uh, ethnically different and frequently hostile, operated to limit the scope of intermarriage. In England, the pairing of the outright requisite community to a hard core possibly resulted in fewer Catholics being willing to enter nuptials across confessional lines. In the Netherlands, on the other hand, intermarriage was common and numerous opportunities presented themselves to the Catholic population to find spouses who were neither linguistically nor socially foreign to them, but of a different religion. 
Nevertheless, it seems probable that the reasons why intermarriage became such a source of tension in the Netherlands reflected the preoccupations of the clerical leadership in insisting on the conformity of Dutch Catholicism to Denetine norms as well as to the sheer dimensions of the phenomenon. The gender dimensions of the Catholicism which developed in the Roman Church's Western periphery has been the subject of not insignificant attention also. (coughs) Much of this literature has stressed the manner in which the prescribed position of Catholicism could actually operate to confer a certain freedom of action and thought on women. The fact that their religion was restricted from the public sphere, from which women too were increasingly restricted, meant that women in non-Catholic societies paradoxically may have suffered less exclusion in matters of faith and spirituality. By the middle of the 17th century, between three and 4,000 Kropen, women in a, in a spiritual community committed to an active apostolate of service to the church were active in the northern provinces of the Netherlands. Far exceeding the number of priests available, these women acted as sexons for, cap, for Catholic places of worship, not merely housekeeping for their spiritual directors, but actually overseeing the upkeep and maintenance of the sacred space and coordinating invitations to services. They provided instruction to the wider community, often from mission centres where priests were often less present. They collected alms and they ran homes and educational establishments for Catholic girls. The cloakmen attracted considerable hostility from Protestant authority because of their perceived importance, not only within the devotional culture of Dutch Catholicism, but even in a mission context reaching out to seek conversions. To some extent, they also acted as a shield for male Catholics, whether laymen or priests, reducing their need to expose themselves to the danger of state intervention. With regard to England, Alexander Walsham has suggested that the gentry recusant homes of England offered a particular opportunity for the development of of communities which represented the very culmination of the attempt to create a devout Catholic laity. Whilst Francis Dolan has pointed out the multiple relationships forged between priests and their female helpers and hosts in Lake Tudor and Stuart, England. In Ireland, Patrick Corish has emphasised the degree to which Irish Catholicism was influenced by strong female input, something which he ascribed to the primacy of the domestic sphere in the spiritual life of the community, which prevented this disjunction between a private feminine devotion and a more masculine and public practice of religion. Now, a certain danger in such argumentation is the tendency to downplay the degree to which metropolitan Catholic cultures could offer a sometimes underestimated degree of space and spiritual autonomy to women. And I'm thinking here of the very important charismatic um, female figures who emerged in southern Italy in the first half of the 17th century. It's true that the Inquisition could be highly severe in in cases of what it considered to be feigned sanctity, but that did not make it impossible for women to uh, be acknowledged as saintly and to uh, acquire significant uh, charismatic influence in places like Bari and Napoli. Also in the Netherlands, it appears that the first half of the 17th century was the era which offered maximum possibilities for female leadership in Dutch Catholicism, thus conforming to a common historical pattern in Christian denominations, where moments of extreme vulnerability create particular but short-lived opportunities for female agency. In Britain and Ireland, too, it can be pointed out that it was evidently more difficult for women to enter religious life than most areas of Catholic Europe. The anxiety about the protection of the honour of the Brides of Christ meant that most women from the archipelago who wished to become nuns were forced to go to the continent, something which complicated and vastly raised the expenses of the whole project. Against this, it probably resulted in fewer women from Britain or Ireland uh, being forced into religious life as a result of familial pressure. The example of the Klopen of the Netherlands, and in particular the contrast between their development and the ultimate uh, repression of Mary Ward's institute, also indicate that wide variations existed between the possibilities open to women religious in marginal Catholic societies. The gendered practice of Catholicism was also affected by the different societal position of the religion on the periphery of Europe. 
Francis Dolan has pointed out the manner in which gendered privileges, such as the right to bear witness, could be lost by requisite men in England, whereas for women such considerations naturally did not apply. Both in Ireland and in England, the status of men as heads of household ensured that they were more vulnerable to legal penalties than were their wives and daughters. In England, despite the ferocious nature of the statutes, women were executed only for the crime of harbouring priests. Thus, while the pressure on men of Catholic inclination towards church papistry could be overwhelming, it seems likely that in many cases their wives were freer to protect what they saw as the spiritual integrity and safety of the family by not attending the established church. And indeed, this may have corresponded to another example of an early modern division of labour and responsibility along gender lines. In the Netherlands, too, the Attraction of office holding was an incentive for male conformity, a choice probably made easier both by the tolerance within Dutch Catholicism for deathbed reconciliation and the fact that such a decision did not mean that the women of the household could not preserve the traditional religion. A lesser vulnerability to the ferocity of the law than in England also helped um, this, uh, this occur, and I realise now that unlike the people of the previous session that I'm moving past time, so I'm just going to suggest as a final thought that rather than one minority Catholicism on the western fringe of Europe, what developed was a highly variegated system of communities exposed to various, varying degrees of harassment and persecution, and with very different modes of church organisation. Separate from each other and from the Catholic societies of Europe, their identity was nevertheless sustained by a consciousness of belonging to a religion which crossed international borders. Reacting to this, the intellectuals of the various areas were keen to integrate the history of their own patria as a local and, of course, particularly virtuous variation of a common Catholic inheritance. And the sense of the wider dimension of the religious inheritance was probably fuelled in particular by the system's clerical fra- of training in the Catholic states of Europe, which ensured that a very significant portion of the clergy at work in Ireland, Britain and the Netherlands had lived and been educated abroad before returning to the idiosyncratic conditions of their native societies. Thank you.